Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Aaron Armstrong. Of the We Love to Watch Podcast. Of the We Love to Watch Podcast. I did the We Love to Watch. I am I'm Aaron Armstrong. I people in my life make fun of me that when I say I'm Aaron Armstrong, it sounds different than everything else I say. And it's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a pattern I've gotten into, Brandon. You've got a great like radio announcer voice in general. I'm very jealous of it. I was on the radio for three years. It shows. Uh, that's, that's why all my all my inclinations are to uh, uh, get really big when I'm announcing the weather. <laughs> it's an AM radio station. I was just talking to your co-host in a group chat that we're both in about the fact that y'all are pretty much the only guests we have on this show ever anymore. Well, what's funny is we stopped having guests on our show with the <laughs> exception of like five of you. Uh, you, Carrie, Rick, Ethan, just because we got... There was a point where in COVID, we were like five months ahead and we were just like recording all the time. And then eventually we weren't ahead anymore. And it became like to like, hey, do you have time tonight? Hey, do you have time tonight? Uh, Like to try to just fit in recording as we've kind of kept the podcast going over seven and a half years. But like that kind of no planning, we don't even have a theme necessarily planned until the week ahead, really is not very conducive to like a guest experience. So it's but it's also been nice because you and some of our other like really good friends on the show, like we have such a natural dynamic and good rapport. And like we it does sometimes guests and I we've had a lot of great guests. Sometimes guests feel like work to have on your podcast. Oh, definitely. And like you and all of our favorites don't feel like work. Well, between the two shows, I think we're averaging about once a year that we actually talk on mic yeah. right now. So last time we talked, I was on your podcast talking about the extra matter space when you were doing a kaiju mode. That was, yeah, so about a year ago, last summer. And then before that, you were on this show talking about the Willard, <laughs> the Willard movies, movies with me and Brittany. Yep. And I just kind of reached out like, hey, uh, I knew that We Love to Watch was on a little bit of a recording break. And I asked if you wanted to talk about any movie in the world. And you picked a series of so far 10 movies ten possibly movies. we I'm could like, talk about today. I'm like, sure. You, <laughs> one, we do one on our show, Brandon. Like, I know you guys have a bigger appetite for like, let's cover it all. And yeah, yeah I was. Uh, so we're doing the Universal Frankenstein series, which is very long. Not to introduce it on your own show, but I I watched them all. So last year for Spooktober was my all-time record. I can already tell you, even though we're recording this in the midst of Spooktober, I'm, ne- I'm not going to beat it this year. I watched <laughs> 136 new-to-me horror movies between October 1st and October Holy 31st. Shit. And part of that, Brandon, is because I had a six-month-old. And here's the great thing about a six-month-old. They have no interest in watching TV. You're not, like, fighting my... Now that that same kid is a year and a half, he wants Sesame Street. He wants things to watch on the TV. And you can help around the house by just sitting in a room with a baby that doesn't do all that much. And so, like, <laughs> I – but I also I'm not – you know, my other kids are running around and doing things. I'm not going to put on fucking, you know, Houseu or some ter- – like, some gory stuff. So I had this Universal box set. And I made my way through all the Frankenstein movies and all the mummy movies like during the day over the course of Spooktober, which is helpful because they're all like an hour long. And the mummy series, Brandon, I got to tell you, I know you have the box set, too. It's fine. (laughs) It's mostly not very good. (laughs) I was amazed at how many of the Frankenstein movies were good. And I was amazed at their commitment to continuity from movie 
to movie. It's something like at a time when there was no VHS players and like there was no way to really watch these things. The idea that they just kind of keep this series going. Um, and it's different than all the other Universal movies. Like, you know, Creature of the Black Lagoon has a f- has like three movies that are kind of in a continuity. The Invisible Man has like two and then it gets into like the invisible spot. Like it's like theme sequels as opposed to like continuity sequels. Dracula has basically nothing. They kind of fold the Dracula. Wolfman has basically nothing. They fold that into this continuity. So I was I was just kind of impressed in a time when I think a, a lot of us get annoyed at long running movie series that like try to be consistent from movie to movie like a Marvel, like a Star Wars, whatever else it is. That this series existed and no one told me it was probably the template to someone of like, let's make sure that each movie picks up where the last movie left off for 10 years. Yeah, and the lore gets really convoluted the more they have to stretch it to keep the story going, which is fun. It gets so convoluted, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more. It's also so sad. The last half of these movies are basically the main character is the Wolfman who just wants to die. And like, <laughs> you know, the, most of these are post Hayes co- code. And the fact that like the theme of this movie is like eternal life is misery. A life without pain is misery. And the Wolfman just wants to be put out of his misery and is trying to use Frankenstein scientists and other monsters to figure out how to do that. Which is an essential part of his lore. Like we just watched, the Wolfman for this show, and he's begging for like assisted suicide in the very first movie. <laughs> he is that is his whole thing. He just wants to die, and like they kind of like almost make him the protagonist of the last few movies with like Frankenstein's powers or ability or the scientists around him almost used to try to figure out how can we use this science to kill the Wolfman at his at his request. I did purchase the classic monsters box set that you just referred to. Because of this conversation, we were going to watch eight Frankenstein movies originally. And I was like, by the time I start borrowing library DVDs yeah. and like making VOD rentals and watching fuzzy YouTube rips, I'm going to wish I had those Blu-rays in my lap. Uh, a fantastic purchase already. I will say it has slowed down my Halloween um, rhythms because instead of just cramming in these like 70 minute movies, because they are mostly very short, like yeah. you said. There is like two to three hours bonus material for every film in the box set. It is a labyrinth designed to trap film nerds forever in one group of movies. It is so good. The amount of care they put into this for all the sequels, all the commentaries. Like I, I, I've scratched the surface. Um, I haven't gone too hard into some of the special features just because, like, I still have 15 movies to watch. Like, <laughs> I have all the Invisible Man stuff. I have all the – I haven't even seen the Spanish Dracula or the, like – I just feel like I have so much stuff to still to get to. And, it, yeah, it's an amazing series. The movies look great. Uh, it usually is like 100 bucks on Amazon, which is like a dollar a movie probably. Oh, totally worth yeah. it. That said, it is an incredibly dense collection of films and bonus material. We could talk about Frankenstein for like 15 hours and not even cover most of it. Uh, I am going to risk something here and ask you, since we are in the middle of Halloween and you have the most voracious spooktober watching habits of anyone I know, just as an icebreaker that we usually ask each other in the show, like, what have you been watching lately? Is there anything that's really stood out as like exceptional? So I, I'm only, it's October 10th. I'm not gonna, I might finish a movie tonight. 
that I started yesterday that'll make it 20. This is going to be a 50 or 60 year for me, Brandon. This is a, I did, <laughs> I did 102 in 2020 and I said, I'm never going to beat that. And I did 118 in 2021. And I said, I'm never going to beat that. And I did 136 in 2022. And I said, I'm never going to beat that. This is the year I come back down to earth a little bit, uh, just because I have a busy October outside of sitting in front of movies. Wait, just to clarify real quick. I mean, I'm sure people have heard me rep for, we love to watch on the show before, but in case you don't listen, and you should, every Halloween season, y'all watch, <laughs> it's supposed to be 31 it's supposed to be, It started as 31, movies. and then in COVID, <laughs> it exploded, and we, and, and you know, my co-host Peter would sometimes get 50, and I would feel bad. I was like, ah, I only got 38, or like one year I got, I think I got 45, and he got 60, and then something like just snapped in us, <laughs> and we just went nuts, Um and... What's so funny is I was I was looking back at like because I log them all on Letterboxd as I watch them, and I was looking at the movies I was watching per day, like six movies on a weekday, and I really was like, "What was I doing? How <laughs> did I do this? When did I do this? Like, do do did my did I talk to my kids? Did I work? Like, what happened that allowed me?" to do this as I'm just a little busier and I'm like, man, if I can get to two a day, I'm feeling pretty good about that. But I really wanted to get past my kind of like big one was 124. 124 is really what I wanted to hit, which was four move on average of four movies a day. And I overshot that new to me movies per day. I've yet to hit 31 in a single year. I've tried to follow along with y'all. So it's crazy. (laughs) So I'll say something though. This year we decided in the interest of, including people in our lives more that are willing to watch spooky movies. We changed the rules, Brandon. We didn't announce, I I think we might've announced this on our podcast, but the new rules for Spooktober for us for tracking is either new to me or we introduce it to someone that is Ah. new to me. And so that has allowed, one thing I really like about that, my nine-year-old is a horror obsessive. Uh, She loves horror movies. We just got through all six Scream movies we watched half of Candyman last night. We're going to finish it tomorrow night. That's awesome. She's obsessed with horror movies and she loves Spooktober. She thinks Spooktober is a real holiday and she talks about <laughs> it at school, which makes sense because she celebrated, I've celebrated her entire life. We're like from some like weird religious sect that has this <laughs> spiritual holiday that only we know about. A two person cult. It is. I always watched horror movies with her, but I got to tell you, when you're just like, yeah, I don't know, there's this. 1985 horror movie that's supposed to be pretty bad, but at least from what I can tell from common sense media, you can watch it. You know, at some point she's going to lose interest. So this change was good. Peter's watching more with his wife. Uh, Ryan uh, Boland, a person who is uh, a guest on our show frequently and, and does Spooktober with us, is watching more with his girlfriend. So we did modify the rules to allow other people to experience horror movies. We're not like, hey, I'm sorry, 80 of these are going to be pretty bad and no one's going to enjoy them. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but on that note, so there's two movies this year that I've been uh, so excited to watch. Every year I make my list, usually starting in November, and then I keep adding to it and modifying it and try to figure out what am I going to watch. And, you know, some ability to, like, go and say we have a very active chat with myself, Peter, and Ryan where it's like I watch this, I watch this, go watch this. So it allows some, like, flexibility into impulsivity where I'm not actually just going through a numbered list. But there were two movies this year that are two movies that I've tried to watch forever, and I was so happy I had the opportunity, and I kicked off Spooktober with both of them. 
Uh, the first one is a movie called Ghost Watch from 1992, Ooh. the BBC documentary. Um, it was on a streaming service like eight years ago for a day, and then everything else has been shitty YouTube rips. But if you don't know about this, this is a document, a quote-unquote documentary that aired on the BBC like it's a 2020 live investigation show of a haunting that gets incredibly scary and more scary for its tone. And it's you could show this to someone and go this was a real thing that aired and I think they would believe it. It's kind of set up like that and it's fantastic. Uh, this year, some, one of the boutiques did a 4k remaster of it for the first time and finally kind of made it available in this amazing box set with this great book and everything else. So I bought it when it came out like six months ago and I've been saving it as like my spooktober kickoff. It is everything I expected. Sometimes those things are like, Hey, this is a cool concept, this documentary from 1992 that um, is supposed to be real and has some spooky stuff. This movie is legitimately scary and like just the whole trappings around it make it incredibly fun to watch. It's like if a WNUF Halloween special was like a real prank in that um, Orson Welles wore the world's way. Yeah. I mean, if you were watching this in 1992, I just imagine there is or so the funny thing about War of the Worlds, if you ever like studied it in like a media literacy class, they constantly broke every 10 minutes to say this is fake. Like <laughs> this is not this is a docudrama and it didn't matter to a bunch of people. This movie has not a wink that nothing is real. Wow. And it's it's so amazing. Cannot recommend the set highly enough. Wish it was on streaming somewhere. I saw it was available to rent a couple weeks ago. Oh, I almost jumped on it. I've been dying to see it for years. Yeah, go see it. Make that one of your less than thirty-one movies you watched this October. Uh, <laughs> and the other one is actually one that I've been trying to watch for twenty years, and I was finally able to, which is 1953's Invaders from Mars. I really like the remake. I haven't seen the original. Yeah, so Toby Hooper made a really fun kind of crazy remake that only almost takes like a small part of the movie and then kind of expands it to. To- Tobey Hooper craziness, as we all know. So the reason I was so obsessed with this movie, in college, there was a TMC documentary. I don't even remember the... I think it was about Steven Spielberg. I think they made like a T- or TCM documentary on Steven Spielberg. And he talked about some movies that were like formative to his life. And he mentioned this movie, Invaders from Mars, is the scariest movie he ever saw. Kept him up at night and like helped inspire him to want to make kind of like scary movies. <laughs> Like, basically inspired him to make Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like, this was so scary and terrifying. And they showed clips, and it looked interesting. When I went to go get the DVD on Amazon in, like, 2004, whatever it was, it was already out of print. It has never been back in print. It has never been on a streaming service. I've never... I'm sure people with better access to piracy than I did could have grabbed it, but I never was able to find it on YouTube or... You know, any of film archive or anything like that. And this company just did a 4K remaster of it, just released it in September. And I was so excited to watch it. Um, and I, I really liked it. It has some very legitimate, creepy moments. It was actually the first um, the first sci-fi movie featuring aliens that came out in color. It came out just before War of the Worlds. And so, like, some of the contemporary reviews at the time were like, this is terrifying for children. This is way too real. And it's like aliens in green suits. But then there's like this brain alien like there is in the remake that is like incredibly impressive for 1953. Um, I think this one on at the same time it was released on Blu-ray hit streaming services or at least available to digitally rent as well. So 
just would highly recommend it. It, it. If you like, it's kind of like a lost piece of like 1950s sci-fi horror that just really hasn't gotten its due anywhere for a long time. Yeah, that kind of atomic age stuff really hits my sweet spot because yeah. like a lot of us, I like, learned to love cheap genre filmmaking through Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. And then eventually it was like, well, I'd rather just watch the movie with all these jokes on top of it. Yeah. I don't know half these references anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely like Gen X humor in a way that yeah. I didn't fully latch on to. But I am totally on board with any of these uh, movies, like uh, especially the giant heads, like prosthetics and those old yeah. 50s movies. Love yeah. that stuff. It's great. Has a great like uh, pre Twilight Zone twist ending too. So oh hell yeah yeah it's it's worth your time and it's seventy minutes which are one of the great things about all those movies. <laughs> really helps get those numbers up. Yeah yeah. There's like a drive-in. I mean I do I do <laughs> sort my letterbox list by shortest first to be like oh I could get in three tonight if I pick these three. Yeah. Well I have one that I discovered recently on Shutter which I actually haven't been hitting up much lately. I watched one on there recently though that was. Another restoration that's been out of print for a long time called Beyond Dreams Door from 1989. Oh, yeah. That's on my watch list. I have not seen it, though. It is fucking phenomenal. Okay. Uh, It's playing with, like, nightmare logic, dream imagery in the late 80s. So, Uh obviously, it is somewhat of a Nightmare on Elm Street knockoff. But it's set um, at this, I believe, Ohio college. And it is a regional horror film. So, it's made on 16 millimeter... Non-professionals, I think the budget was $60,000, which is relatively low even for a regional film. And it blew my mind. Like, the thing about the Elm Street movies is all of the surrealism that you're really looking for in those movies is neatly contained in the nightmare sequences. Yep. And there's a little bit of liminal space when a character is trying to stay awake and they slip into a dream before they realize they're asleep. This movie goes the other direction where... It keeps doing those like dream within a dream within a dream rug pulls where you keep thinking that you're awake and then it fakes you out to the point where the dreams are escaping the um, college student's mind and attacking his colleagues and his professors in the real world. And then it gets almost Lovecraftian. Um, I guess the the university setting helps with that a little bit uh, instantly, but gradually it it becomes this... um, not just that there's a monster in this man's head that attacks him in his dreams and eventually attacks people in the real world, but the terror becomes more metaphysical than that. And like the monster starts affecting reality and erasing people from the real world. And it's just one of those movies where I get reminded why I really like low budget genre stuff Mm -hmm. and that there's no guardrails. There's no, Kevin Feige type producers telling (laughs) you, you know, what will sell and like what's acceptable from the general public. It's a space for outsider artists to take chances on things. Um, Yeah. Because of MST3K, we've been kind of trained to laugh at the non-professional acting in those movies, which will be a hurdle in this one for a lot of people. But if you stick with it, it's a really good argument for like low budget horror as outsider art and the visual stuff they pull off in these sort of like, you know, those like black box theater voids that people do when they don't have a budget. Yeah. And it's just like an isolated image in a, in a nothing realm. There's yeah. tons of that stuff, but it looks like high art because it's just done with so much passion. It never gets lazy. The movie's coming up with new visual ideas every scene. 
and it, it surprised me from start to end. Well, that's well, Lovecraftian is. Uh... We love to watch his love language, so I think uh, I think that probably is a good recommendation. It, um, funnily enough, Peter and I were we sometimes use Scener. I don't know if you've ever messed with it. No, um, it's a way that you can uh, sync up movies on all the streaming services and then have like a little video chat to watch with your friends. I like the name of that one better than Jackbox, which sounds like it's explicitly for sexual yeah. meetups. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could use Cedar for it, <laughs> but uh, we've we've used it to uh, we we sometimes do that during Spooktober to watch a few Shutter movies, um, and I think that was on our list to watch uh, via that. So yeah, hell yeah. Maybe by the time this comes out, I'll have seen it. Well, that is plenty preamble. We have plenty of stuff to talk about because we were talking about the many adventures of Frankenstein's monster today, which goes. Far beyond where you might expect it would end. Because <laughs> most Very people think so. of it as being two movies. Yeah. There's plenty more than that. And all that's coming up to you right now. We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein. A man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation. Life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... uh, Well, we've warned you. So my inclination here is to group the two James Whale movies together because... They're very well covered. Like, there's not much territory that we can really enlighten for the James Whale Frankenstein movies, you know? Yeah, there's whole books written about them, which I I bought one and didn't read it. So, um, so buy those books, I guess. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just worth kind of talking about, like, what your exposure to Frankenstein was. Because I can tell you, uh, Frankenstein, like, the original movie... I, I, when I was in elementary school, second, third grade, there was a library... It was a block from my house, which was amazing. And they had VHS rentals and they had a terrible selection. It's not like today where you go in and it's like better than any video store. They're the only people preserving uh, uh, DVDs and stuff like that. They had like 15 movies that I had any interest in and they were free. So obviously I would just keep going and getting these 15 movies over and over. And there were some really good ones. There was like Star Trek The Motion Picture and Superman and Indiana Jones The Temple of Doom and, and stuff like that. Uh, and then there was Frankenstein. And so I would go and get this movie constantly. And it was, it was by, and I was also obsessed with, have you ever heard of the Crestwood House monster book series, Brandon? Was that just like the encyclopedia of monsters? No. So there were these orange books. I go look it up on Google. You may okay. have some weird, like nostalgia trigger that occurs. They had these in my elementary school library and it was all i checked out and all it was each book was like a rundown of each of these like monster series so they had the king kong series they had creature of the black lagoon they had you know godzilla they had all the universal monsters they had all of them at my elementary school library and i was obsessed with them sometimes they would like go like here's like atomic age stuff and it's deadly mantis and them and all these other things and it had these great black and white full page pictures of of all the stuff and like uh, stories of what what happened in each of these movies 
But I didn't really have a way to watch any of these movies. We didn't have cable. I didn't have easy access to a video rental store. But I was obsessed. And so Frankenstein was like the only one of... I could read about all these fucking movies. But it was the only one that I could go watch over and over. And I was just obsessed with this movie. Like, everything about, like, how scary the monster was. The fact that they kill a kid in it. Like, those sort of things that all of my safe cartoons and Disney afternoon stuff and everything else didn't didn't provide. And it's so funny because then, like, whether it was Dracula, whether it was Invisible Man, whether it was Bride of Frankenstein... I don't think I watched any of that stuff till high school and college and started going through the list. Like this movie, the original movie was my was the only universal monster movie I saw until much, much later in my life. So I, this, this movie specifically just has a very special place in, in my life as like the only one of the, the only monster character from those books that i read obsessively that i was actually able to see the movie of the books i was reading it's worth noting too that he pretty much is the mascot for the universal brand yes yeah anytime they say famous monsters it's very likely you'll see boris karloff on the cover of whatever publication you're looking at yeah um you know dracula may have been the first like big one that opened the gates and lugosi's images dracula is obviously very popular as well yeah. And personally, I think the black cat is like the masterpiece in that collection. Yeah. yeah. But Frankenstein is the most iconic. And you'll notice that as we go along too, like he is the sort of core that they let everyone else revolve around. Even if they don't have anything from the do, he has to be like front and center in the title and on the poster to sell the monster mashups. Yeah. They, I mean, they really, I mentioned this at the, in the first segment, but like, all these other series, these monster series, basically go nowhere. With the exception of, like, The Mummy, but even then there's not continuity. They really, like, take everyone and kind of glom them on to the Frankenstein series because that had the box office momentum to get people to the door. And it's it's so funny, too, because, like, you know, so much of my concept of Karloff and Lugosi, who are so heavily featured in the, the entire series... Sometimes as Frankenstein, sometimes as other people, um, is based on Ed Wood, like the Tim Burton. Of course, movie from yeah, 1994. Me too. Like, and so, like you know, seeing Ed Wood, I had this like image that, like you know, the the whole the whole point that Bela Lugosi makes in that movie is like he didn't want to be Frankenstein. He thought Frankenstein was like a bad role, where Dracula is like this great theatrical, you know lustful evil person that you could actually sink your teeth in and then it's karloff who ends up getting famous they make all the sequels out of his movies and he eventually kind of goes along for that ride in the spirit of getting work while abandoning his like character that he made famous and honestly i was a little bitter about that because <laughs> yeah. i am a huge edward fan like one of my favorite yeah, filmmakers it's one of my favorite movies well, I mean, just the, oh, the just director, the too. Yeah, yeah, like, I love Glenn or Glenda, and I have a huge affection for Plan 9 from Outer Space in a very genuine way. Yeah. And I kind of bought the Tim Burton movie narrative, like, hook, line, and sinker. I was like, oh, you know, Karloff has a striking image, but, you know, Lugosi got short-shrifted because he is, like, a charismatic performer as well. Yeah. And then 
today, uh, watch uh, all, all these movies we're going to talk about. It's kind of shocking how much space Lugosi is given to be a total ham on screen. And like, <laughs> he is. Well, yeah. except that except when he played Frankenstein, because and we'll talk about that in the ghost of Frankenstein where they cut all his dialogue because they're <laughs> like, you sound we, we don't we don't buy Hungarian Frankenstein. Uh, but we'll we'll. We'll get into that. What's what's so funny, though, is that even when Dracula starts showing back up in these movies, it's just like Lugosi may be in it, but they just get another guy to play Dracula. Yeah. And my whole experience with Frankenstein and all the famous monsters is jumbled like that. It's all about the media that came after and just mashed them all together in a big, confusing soup. Yeah. The first title that really comes to mind is Monster Squad. Which oh yeah, a lot of what you were talking about earlier was just you know access to public library books, public library VHS tapes, PBS broadcasts, what have you, and access was like a huge deal in the eighties and nineties mm-hmm. when we were coming up watching movies for the first time. Yeah, and I had a cousin who happened to tape Monster Squad off the TV <laughs> yeah. uh, onto a VHS tape that we just ran into the fucking ground, and it is a traditional monster rally movie in a way that a lot of these Frankenstein sequels are where it's like the spectacle of it is seeing the monster share the screen with Dracula and the mummy um, and the Wolfman. Yeah. And it's a deliberate throwback to this era, but I experienced that uh, kind of the way that like Simpsons Treehouse of horror is the way that you experience a lot of the classics before you actually see it. You see the spoof first, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that was the case for me as well. And the thing about that is that, Frankenstein in Monster Squad or most of the other like Saturday morning cartoons like he gets the short shrift outside of these movies and I think that's just because there's only so much you can do with him so if you're making a cartoon a kid's cartoon or something that features Frankenstein the Wolfman and Dracula or something like that you have Dracula who does all the talking and is like usually the most fleshed out character you have the Wolfman, who's the most ferocious and gets the pain. And then Frankenstein's just this lumbering oaf that sometimes they get to, like, push down a door or something like that. And so, you know, kind of in going back to, like, this movie in in particular, where there's so much pathos and there's so much style and he is a terrifying creature just because he's brought into a world that he doesn't understand and that wants to kill him, it's... It's funny about how his character works better, I would say, than most of the other Universal monster movies as a movie and as a character. But then outside of this context group together, he becomes a side character, which will eventually become in these movies, too. Well, part of that is like the redundancy of putting him and the Wolfman in the same picture, because it's the same tragic story uh, where the monster doesn't mean to be violent and you're supposed to feel bad for him a little bit. But the Wolfman is just way more articulate, so he's obviously a better main character, which kind of pushes Frankenstein to the side a little bit. Off to the side. Let's talk about that. So, uh, look, I buy the whole idea that the Frankenstein Frankenstein is a misunderstood, shouldn't be called a monster. He is given the brain of a murderer. So, (laughs) like, I understand he becomes something a little bit new. But the the motor that's powering him murdered people in when it was alive. So, like, I'm not saying I like I I'm not ready to draw the line saying that Frankenstein should be condemned for murders he committed when earlier in his life. 
Um, one thing that I think is kind of interesting just from a historical standpoint is that, like, you know, we we have a different concept. I'm not saying people didn't have this concept necessarily when Frankenstein or even the book came out. But, like, you know, so much of these movies are like, let's put to, like, let's put together a person that has no soul but is made from body parts. Where, like, we, I think, would say... Yeah, the brain is the person. Right. <laughs> Everything else is not like so. If you transfer John the murderer's brain into a seven foot tall body, John the murderer now has a seven foot tall body. There's nothing else that's happening there. Wait, even now, having watched this movie twice in the past month and watched all these like documentaries on it, I'm still getting it confused with parodies of it. Is there a shot of Igor selecting? Yeah, from two jars, and one says normal brain, and one says abnormal brain, and he picks so the ab- abnormal so, one. <laughs> so normal and abnormal is from Young Frankenstein. Okay, okay. But he does select, I think it's like a murderer's brain in the original. He does get the wrong brain. Yeah, I remember him sneaking into the lecture hall where like a scientist is giving like some lecture, yeah. Yeah, and he he does grab the wrong one. What you're thinking of, there's a part in Young Frankenstein, then he... <laughs> then he Igor explains to Frankenstein that he he just chose Abby Normals. Brain. <laughs> we did watch. We should say we watched Young Frankenstein. We watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And I, because I never seen it, watched 1994's Frankenstein. Here's the other thing about Frankenstein, and I didn't know this. I never read the book. Have you read the book? Not that I can remember. I definitely read Dracula, but yeah, I don't think so. I read Dracula too. I, I think it's because I had access to the movie, and when I was a kid, it's like, why would I ever choose the book over the movie when I have access? To, to the movie, I assumed that 1931's Frankenstein was a pretty straight adaptation of the book. And when I watched Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the 1994 version, and I was reading reviews of that afterwards, I'm like, this is so convoluted. Why the <laughs> fuck did they add all this stuff? This is crazy that they're like, let's do this and let's do this. Somehow, I've went 40 years of my life not realizing that basically the 1994 Frankenstein is a pretty straight adaptation of the book. And this is the one that takes elements and really kind of makes its own thing. I was like, I was literally shocked. I don't know how I went so long in my life not knowing that, like, this is almost like a very loose adaptation with a couple of big moments around Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Which is the smarter way to adapt any piece of literature is like <laughs> yeah. boil it down to its core imagery. And, you know, a lot of the things that people assume are standards among the standard monsters <laughs> and even defining what that canon of standard monsters is, is yeah. because of the universal pictures. Like hundred percent, a lot of the language and lore of horror filmmaking, like, what the monster looks like in this film or the fact that it has to be a full moon for the Wolfman to transform or just like really basic stuff that you kind of assumed was pulled from like whatever local legends was developed in this stuff is actually just sort of invented by these screenwriters uh, in, you know, pre-code Hollywood. Well, even just like him dying in a fire in the, you know, in a, or in a windmill, like, which is like, the most iconic, like, monster death of all time. Like, you know, in the book, he dies, like... He, I don't even know if he dies. He kills Frankenstein in the Arctic or something. Like, it's... <laughs> it's, like, it's... It's kind of crazy how, like... Yeah, all these things that we feature, we think of as, like, these templates of these, like... Yeah, fables or classic literature characters are, like, just completely 
invented by James Whale and all the other people that that contributed to these movies. And if I have anything to say, really, in a sort of general sense about the two James Whale movies, is that I have noticed recently that Bride of Frankenstein has been considered the superior work. Yeah. Uh, It is very playful, and it's more overtly queer than the original film, um, which for like a mostly out gay filmmaker is a big deal. And he was given a lot more creative control for it. And it does allow the monster to talk, which is a part of the original novel that is just like skipped over in the first Frankenstein movie from 1931. I mean, he won't shut the fuck up in that book. (laughs) The the movie adaption is any is accurate. He teaches himself to read. And all the movies keep playing with the idea of like giving him a voice and then immediately pulling back. and like, no, we can't allow that. Yeah, because they had established the rules in the first Frankenstein movie and it was like hard to like override the original image that they carved out. Yeah, I so I don't think I saw Bride of Frankenstein until I was in college. And I remember thinking it was superior to the original when I saw it. Um, And I love the original, but I just remember thinking like, oh, I totally get why this is considered one of the best sequels of all time. I hadn't seen it in a few years, and I watched them back to the back, which I think is the only time I've ever done it. And I agree, like the like Bride of Frankenstein is great. There's a lot I like about it. It is. It does have a lot of silliness. I totally forgot about like the shrunken people in the jars. Yeah, just a little bit of camp, you know, just like letting this very over the top pantomime performer play with his little dolls for like minutes on end in the middle of a monster <laughs> movie is very. It's very like Joe Dante and Gremlins 2 energy. It's just like blowing up the entire format of the franchise. And so I can see why it was influential as like to to Joe Dante. Like, hey, you take the original and just, you know, do whatever you want with it in the sequel. But there's some things I forgot about. I forgot that the Bride of Frankenstein literally shows up with four minutes remaining, screams, kills herself. And then like the monsters like let her die. Like I liked that sequence, but I was I just remembered it being like her being present for more of it. One of the most beautiful creature designs in any horror film ever. Yeah. And it's in the last like three to five minutes of this movie. It is It is less than four minutes because I pause the movie and I'm like, holy shit. She gets there, looks, pushes away Frankenstein, screams. And like, you know, Frankenstein's like, let her die. Let us die. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It's such a great scene, but it's there's a lot of other things, including like, you know, Frankenstein being blackmailed by Dr. Pretorius and a lot of other stuff that's still good. But one of the things I really appreciated about this rewatch in Frankenstein is like Frankenstein is created and he's there 30 minutes in. He's and then he gets loose. And I almost even though I've seen this movie so many times, I, the part that clearly didn't stay with me from 100 times as a kid, like I forgot that there's a part in the middle of the movie where they're like, hey, 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 I guess I've had enough chances to play God it didn't work out. Let's go get married. Let's go proceed with my wedding, with my board of directors that I didn't remember was in this movie. Let's just all move on past it. That's where I was going to go with the queer representation stuff, too, yeah. is that the second one is mo- more overtly campy and like in your face with the queer. It's not even subtext in the second no. movie. It's just like right there yeah. on the surface. Yeah. But I actually feel like that is overlooked in the first one because a lot of the story is... Frankenstein away in his lab with his weird male friends. Yeah. And his dad keeps coming back to pull him back into regular <laughs> no. society. So he'll marry this woman who's waiting for him. And yeah. he's just tortured by this obsessive 
pastime he has with his boys uh, back in the yeah. lab. When he finally fucks it up enough, that's when he's like, oh, God, I guess I got to go get married. Right? <laughs> and yeah, I think there's like, I, I don't think you have to stretch too far to put a queer lens on that story either. Um, even yeah. if that is just retroactive, like adding what we know about James Whale on top of it. But yeah. like a queer reading for most monster movies and like other stories um, in the genre is not that hard, you know, like it, it's still there. Well, we do have a one decent repertory theater in new Orleans. It's a hundred year old single screener called mm-hmm. the Britannia. And I saw the bride of Frankenstein for the first time there. Oh, a couple years ago. It was very recent. That's awesome. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun watching it. And it is like kind of in that Zazz or um, Frank Tashlin style of comedy filmmaking where everything is just for the gag and it just follows yeah. its whims from like joke to joke. And the movie just mm-hmm. is propelled by its own whimsy, which is very fun. But I found myself like every movie I watch, I'm either podcasting or writing about in some mm-hmm. way or another. And after that movie, I really just had nothing to say about it that hadn't already been said. I didn't really feel much other than just like delight and entertainment. Yeah. Which <laughs> I, I don't know that you should put anything more in like a 1930s horror comedy than that. But um, that's what I felt when I left. I do think one of the things that's somewhat interesting, though, is that it's it, I, I don't know if this is true. It's impossible to find it. But like, you know, Frankenstein is a pretty complete series. Or, sorry, Frankenstein as a movie is a pretty complete movie. And they wanted to make more. And I do think it's interesting that, like, it is maybe one of the first cinematic retcons where everyone's like, didn't that guy die? And then Mary Shelley's at the beginning and it's like, no, 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 no. Let me tell this story right. And they open right at the end of that movie and, like, change the ending of Frankenstein to allow, um, to, to allow more people to be alive. And I do, like... I like that opening scene of, like, basically, like, some older lady from the first movie being like, yeah, we killed him, fuck yeah, and Frankenstein just immediately comes right. out and, and kills her. It's it's it, it was so funny watching back-to-back because it was just, like, it just felt like, you know, it's like Halloween 2, like, that opens with, like, fucking Michael Myers just 10 seconds after the last one. It was so funny to see it that way, which I always knew was kind of the case because you remember where the other one ends. But watching them as a series was 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 really fun. And I guess it makes more sense if you want to be a pedant about logical continuity and slashers, which I don't care. But, you know, some people are like that. And it makes more sense for the Frankenstein monster to live on and maybe more so than like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, because... He's made of body parts. He's not actually alive. He's just like yeah. animated by electricity and um, pseudoscience. So like the <laughs> fact that his body keeps going after he's quote unquote killed in the first one makes total sense to me. I don't know how to tell you this, uh, Brandon. We're just made of body parts too. <laughs> <laughs> and electricity too. And so. electricity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, he doesn't have a heart that needs to keep beating. Right. He's already dead. <laughs> he's already he's already dead. They've killed They've killed him. They've killed him again. I like that that becomes, that becomes, uh, I think that's a part of the book where like you can't kill him. Right. And they come up with kind of interesting ideas of how to kill him once they start brainstorming later in the series. Yeah. They're like, put him in mud, freeze him. Right. (laughs) Like, I I like the movies just finally acknowledge that he can't die though. And I I think that's a fun, 
that's a fun way to take these because you know one of the things with like the mummy movies for example and one of the reasons they're not so great is that like at the end of it they keep defeating the mummy and they just feel kind of like stayed it's like yeah you're you're doing the same thing with different sets of characters or more mummies or a, a ghost mummy you know like let's yeah. combine two scary things here they kind of accept like we're not going to make these sequels in a way that is every time they kill frankenstein and he's dead and everyone goes thank god we will might put him out of commission in these more elaborate ways but we recognize that he's still out there and I guess what I was trying to get around to, and I'm, I really telegraphed this several times, so this is probably not a surprise to hear coming out of my mouth right now, but like watching the original Frankenstein, I had a much more revelatory experience. And it was also yeah. recently I was watching, I think maybe Spirit of the Beehive, which has a lot of references to Karloff's image in this movie. Yeah. And I was just like, well, I've never seen the original image that that's referencing. And this is maybe like seven or eight years ago. Yeah. So I watched... That as a double feature, like as soon as that was over, I I watched the original Frankenstein and I just found it to be a really potent piece of visual art. Like, yeah, the um, German expressionist set design where it's kind of like a stage in the way that there's just no ceiling and all yeah. of the, the images are just stretched infinitely in a vertical yeah. way. Insanely long shadows. And then the exterior is even like in the graveyard robbing in the grave robbing sequence outside. It's all these painted backdrops on this very sparse set. And it's kind of like the goth kid version of like the Wizard of Oz sets. It's like it's like really high artifice, but it's so gloomy and like otherworldly and eerie and kind of like in Wizard of Oz. you, You instantly forget that there's a barrier back there and it just feels like a real world. It's just like a dream world that doesn't actually exist. And yeah, I, I really think the mood, the visual art, and the really grotesque fixation on dead, rotting bodies and like murdered children. The first one's pre-code, right? Pre-haze code. So it really, really gets in there with some gross shit for 1931. And the one line they cut out for most home video releases after that was the, uh, now I know what it feels like to be God. Yeah. uh, was cut out of like a lot of the home video releases. Um, I've I've always seen it with that line in there, but like it's kind of incredible they left everything else. Yeah, it it it's a it is a one thing we talk about and we love to watch is that we occasionally cover like pre code movies and like Island of Lost Souls or something, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right, the good guys can die in this movie, and it, there's something almost more shocking about seeing that stuff from a 1930s or 20s movie than there is from seeing it. Uh, you know, a hundred times more grotesque, brutal version in the 1980s or 90s, because in those movies, you recognize uh, that there's less boundaries. And so you're prepping yourself as such. And so when you see like rotting corpses or stuff like that, or just hear people talk about, I, you know, I'm God and God, you know, God doesn't exist in these like movies that are technically supposed to be like couched in safety. Right. Like, yeah, when I see a 1940s Hitchcock movie or whatever else it is, I know the good guys are going to win. I know there's going to be comeuppance. I know I I know what to expect. And the pre-code movies can kind of disarm you. And you actually covered on your show uh, a bunch of Ernest Lubitsch movies, too, which a lot of those pre-code ones, it's like, holy shit, this is a raunchy fucking movie (laughs) like where like people are having threesomes or like. (laughs) clearly like all this stuff and it's it's 
it's not that it's like I haven't seen this before and I'm shocked by it, but you're all your guards are down for that. You you have a certain expectations of this movie in the safety of black and white, and so when when they do depict grotesqueness or do get raunchy or do have themes that feel more adult, it's like shocking in a way that no movie made today can be shocking. Have you seen Babyface? That's the one that like really threw me off. I have not. I got. I guess I got to see Babyface then. It's about this woman who I think it's Barbara Stanwyck who starts in abject poverty and gets a job in an office building and literally fucks her way up the corporate ladder and it, like tracks Amazing. her like um, progress up the building um, up to the executive sweep in the top floor by who she's having sex with strategically. And it's a really fun drama from the, th- I believe the thirties. It's just incredible. They got away with making it when they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you see why the Hayes code was like, all right, that's enough fun guys. We've have the great depression to focus on. <laughs> and the one image from Frankenstein 31 that like really struck me like that was after Frankenstein accidentally drowns the child. Yeah. The scene of her father interrupting the wedding ceremony with the child's corpse, just staggering in disbelief that he's holding his own dead baby. Like I'm, I'm running out of breath just talking about that. Uh, like I, I found that really upsetting and like shocking and scary in a way that like, most older movies that you've seen, like even the image of the girl being drowned, I've seen that parodied and like repeated so many times that that did not shock me as much as the aftermath and the focus on her corpse. Yeah, they, they just carry that dead girl. I mean, they don't do that in most movies now. Like right. when you watch movies where kids die, they like even if it's a you know gross one, it's like okay, it's dead, and we're gonna you know we're gonna cut away quickly, and yeah, that crying dad running to the wedding, which look. I I don't know how it works in in these country villages, but most weddings it's not. I know you're sad your daughter died. You don't bring <laughs> your dead daughter to a wedding. Like, like go. I mean, she's wearing a very nice dress, but I still think it's a mood killer if you ask me. So yeah, I just think like it felt like returning to this like source text of uh, like essential imagery that was the building blocks of like so much stuff I love. Which I guess you could say about the classic monsters box set in general that they're all that. Yeah. But this movie in particular, I don't know, I guess I'm becoming slightly conservative about my um, classic movies being, like, upended by their sillier sequels or spoofs, where I'm like, no, the original text, like, is deserving of respect. And I've heard a lot of um, sort of blowback to the original Dracula in that way, too, where, like, it's lost its potency a little bit because there's been so many vampire movies that have, like, done a, you know, a more entertaining job with the same lore, where, like, the original one's a little slow, especially because its score is missing from the soundtrack. Yep. Because uh, they used to play records in the theaters along with the movie, yep. and it just it kind of drags without that. Yep. But watching the movie in the same German Expressionist... I mean, literally, the people who worked on the German Expressionist movies came over here to work on these. Like, yeah. that set design, Lugosi's image, his performance, like, I find that stuff very powerful and almost spiritual in a way that, like, you know, I'm an atheist... Uh, adults, I don't experience like spiritual <laughs> uh, feelings very often, uh, yeah. but these kind of feel like revelatory images in like a way that like kind of inspire something in me. And like returning to the very original thing is uh, worthwhile, and I think worth like being open to. Yeah, well, I also think like one of th- one of the things that makes so James Whale obviously only directs the first two. One of the reasons so many of these sequels are worth watching, it gets a little bit less and less as each sequel goes on, 
but that kind of set design costume design german expressionism like stays present for so many of the movies i was shocked at how like wonderful son of frankenstein is to to look at it's like it's up there with the james whale movies as like you know, I because I, I like a lot of people. I stopped after Bride of Frankenstein. People talk about Frankenstein. They talk about Bride of Frankenstein. No one fucking talks about the rest of these movies ever. And I think someone from our horror group was like, I just saw Son of Frankenstein. Why don't people talk about that movie more? It's in league with the first two. And I agreed. I watched it and I loved it. And I kept, I kept going. But there's... Yeah, so much of that stylistic thing that was created between Dracula and, and or not created, but taken from German Expressionism and, like, put in these, like, big universal monsters, it just kind of sets a tone that stays consistent for other movies. Like, as we go to the parodies in Young Frankenstein or other movies that, like, depict a mad scientist, like, you know, I obviously I think German Expressionism and, and those types of movies, Dr. Calgary and laying and Murnau and stuff like that would have probably stayed relevant but it's these guys who were watching those movies you know and going holy shit we need to do the same thing because it looks amazing and the people that they hired who worked on the movies to come through you know this was the extension of that and the introduction of it for so many american audiences and i think without the style choices in this movies yes you'd have some director in the 70s who you know, immediately somehow got a copy of Dr. Caligari or something like that. But most of the time, like the style that they're thinking of is these movies. And then later they're watching all those uh, silent German movies. Also, like horror as a genre has always been bankable. I mean, yeah. at least going as far back as this set of films. Yeah, they made 80 of them. So they must have been making some money. It saved the studio from bankruptcy. Like people yeah. kept showing up for these. And when the war and the depression was like kind of stepping on the studio's neck a little bit. They started churning out more monster movies to get the money flowing again. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have Peacock TV if it wasn't for the universal monster. <laughs> where, where would you watch the fresh Prince remake? <laughs> In hell. <laughs> uh, and so I think it's always worth noting. Like I, I consider myself a horror fan. I watch horror year round. It's not just like yeah. a Halloween season thing for me. But I'm not looking for the sort of horror convention stuff. I'm not like, I got to see every Linnea Quigley movie and go get her autograph at the next convention, you know? Like, what I'm yeah. looking for is ways that these low-budget outsider artists found a way to make legitimate visual art commercially viable. And that's what yeah. horror is. And yeah, I think a lot of like the most impeccable visual art being made at this time was just packaged in a way that people were willing to go pay to see in the movie theater. And I I do think with the original Frankenstein, you get a lot of just like the best filmmaking around, just sort of packaged yeah. in a pretty yeah. like familiar story, you know? Yeah, it's that's a great point because it's easy for these movies that existed well before most of us were born. Probably everyone listening to this podcast, honestly, by this point was born. Um, unless you have one really active 107 year old or whatever <laughs> listener i think like we just take some of this we take it all for granted right it's so easy to go yeah frankenstein that's always existed and so and so has always existed and like going back to these two movies especially and seeing both like the power in the first one and the originality and creativity on display 
in the second one and some of the tropes, it's like you're you're right to note that like even though I really liked this movie because I was watching a monster movie, so much of the appreciation for what it meant in its time and how scary and surprising and dark it can be today is based on knowledge that you get as an adult or as a lover of horror films and film that you just can't appreciate where it's like yeah of course they made the frankenstein movie that's what frankenstein is it's this movie (laughs) yeah that's what it is and so you know the fact that it could still be surprising to me that like this was you know Something like with so many of the the, the book adap- book adaptations of the time, with the exception of like cutting out things that wouldn't follow the Hayes Code, were usually pretty close. And the fact that this movie is like, there's a guy, there's a monster, there's Igor, <laughs> he's assembled from dead parts, and everything else we're basically going to we're going to create from scratch for the most part to tell this really slim down sad story. Uh, and it, the the other thing I'll just note is like Frankenstein's so funny because there was that controversy a few years ago where like uh, some conservative people were like uh, complaining about this English professor or someone who was like teaching that the monster was the sympathetic character and like it's so funny that conservatism and like media literacy and like film and literacy has 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 declined in some cases to the point that like they think that like the monster as a sympathetic creature is a new leftist liberal take as opposed to like the point of the book and you know almost a hundred years later the movie as well like it's it's so funny because i remember in fourth grade i did uh, i was in an art class and we were drawing frankenstein like for an art thing and i made i wrote frankenstein's monster and i made the monster scary and i remember the teacher was like no 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 like he's not scary like trying to trying to like make him into evil and do some other things is actually like missing the point but i like drawing scary you know demon <laughs> monsters and stuff like that so i was really into that but he was like corrective of like no that's not what the story's about and i don't think i got what the story is about when i was in third grade and seeing the movie it's just a monster who they kill and they do with fire and it's it's funny that a hundred years later we're at this point where there's people who are like, yeah, it's a monster they kill with fire, except they're grown adults. I, I like the the poetic um, appropriateness of conservatives aligning themselves with the angry mob that would just want to beat the Frankenstein monster to death with hammers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anti-science. How dare this guy do this? In the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, ming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. So, the one that I think is the closest on par with the two original movies is son of Frankenstein. I think it works really well as a full trilogy stylistically. It's this, it's, it's similar. I like, it is kind of really addressing the concept of like a legacy. It's if you've seen young Frankenstein, which we both just recently watched again for this podcast as well. So much of it is coming from son of Frankenstein. 
Uh, it's uh, even though like all the books I read as a kid are like it's mostly taken from Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but I think no one ever went back and watched Son of Frankenstein. So, except Mel Brooks. Uh, but this is basically like it's. Oh, let's actually. I want to pause here. So. <laughs> This is this is Victor Frankenstein has a son who's now an adult and a doctor is their own. And then that kind of keeps going through the movies. I think by the time you get to the last movie, it's taking place in 1980, just based on timelines. <laughs> like, it sure looks like it's taking place again in like the 1890s. But like, there are like grandsons of grandsons by the time you get to the end of this movie. And I think just from a timeline perspective, they really should be like on early versions of cell phones, which I just think is very funny. It should be like the Jetsons. It should be like some like vision of the future. Well past what yeah. the filmmakers could see, you know, they, they there's a 40 year gap between Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein. And they're like, it's basically the same. Nothing has changed. <laughs> um, so I, I just think that's very funny if you were to math out the whole timeline of these movies. Um, yeah, but it's about his, it really is like his son being like, hey, my dad was a kook. I'm not going to get into this crazy science stuff. And then he like looks over some of his books and he's like, this crazy science stuff. <laughs> my dad might not have understood while it worked, but now in the future, 40 years later, we understand I like all the science talk where they're, like, trying to give some, like, almost, like, atomic age science stuff to how lightning made a creature come to life. Which is standard across all of these movies, is that Tobias Fuque, like, well, it didn't work the first time, but maybe if we do it. (laughs) Maybe if we do it. Yeah, like, every scientist is corrupted by this power over and over and over again. They all come in with the best intentions, and they all go mad, like, instantly. Yeah, I know. It's, it's great. They keep doing it. It's amazing. Uh, th- this is also the last one with Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. So they're really, it does work as like a really great, like kind of trilogy. Boris Karloff, it's not the last time we'll see Boris Karloff in this series, but he doesn't play Frankenstein anymore, which is, I don't know. Like, I'm sure he's like, no, thank you. I don't want to be Frankenstein anymore, but it's so funny to have him into Frankenstein movies where someone else, but they still put Boris Karloff right at the fucking top of those movies, even even if they know he's not playing Frankenstein. And no one ever looks as good in that Jack Pierce makeup as Karloff looks. Like, no, he's so good. Anyone who does it after him sort of looks like Kitsch. Like you start getting to like Monsters territory, where it's like, oh, it's my old pal Frankenstein. It's not like. What a terrifying gaunt monster whose eyes are dead and like has like a weird um, visual poetry to him. Like he's an otherworldly figure in this. Yeah, and everyone else is kind of a little bit of a goof playing. They're kind of playing Frankenberry, honestly. For, <laughs> exactly. For the rest of it. Uh, oh, Igor is now played by by uh, by uh, Bella Gosi, who will be in most of the rest of these movies. Can I say I watched yeah. Son of Frankenstein with a chip on my shoulder the first time and I did not like it because I was specifically watching all of the Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff team ups because yeah. when they both worked for Universal yeah. and I was just constantly upset by Lugosi getting the short shrift and Karloff yeah. always getting the better roles and watching Lugosi play this like diminished sidekick character who's kind of a goof like kind of rubbed me the wrong way when I was watching it in that context of the two of them and then revisiting this it's like not only 
was that very short-sighted because Lugosi gets a lot of room to be hammy as this character goes on beyond yeah. this movie. But also, I'm kind of sad to see Karloff leave the makeup chair and yeah. try on other characters in the series. So, like, I I was just coming at it from the wrong context, and I appreciated the movie a lot more in this series interesting. context. It's interesting that you'd seen this before out of, like, the series context as well. Yeah. Like, just for the team-up. Um then you have the ghost of Frankenstein. It's the only one where Lon Chaney Jr., who plays the Wolfman and will be in a lot of these other movies, plays the fr- plays Frankenstein. Lugosi's in it as well. It's really picking up right where the last one fell off. And the whole point of this is that, like, Igor is going to put... Igor's body sucks, and <laughs> Frankenstein doesn't need to be around anymore, and they're going to put... Um, they're gonna. He's like, let me put my brain into Frankenstein's, but all the doctors are like, hey... That's crazy. Let's put this other guy's brain who's smart and helpful into this body. And that'll work out great. But Igor being a trickster tricks everyone and puts his brain into the body of uh, Frankenstein and then talks a little bit. Then you have House of Frankenstein. No, it's uh, Wolfman. No, no. Wolfman means Frankenstein. This is where Bela Lugosi now just plays Frankenstein's monster. He but and they shot it with him talking (laughs) and the producers were like, this sounds stupid because the whole point was that, of course, he talks like Lugosi. They put Lugosi's brain from Ghost of Frankenstein into Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and they cut it all out. They kind of returned him from this erudite, somewhat erudite, (laughs) talkative person back into kind of a mute from like. The first movie, mainly just because they cut out all the dialogue with Bela Lugosi. So most of the movie is really carried by Lon Chaney Jr., who's playing the Wolfman in his first reprisal of the role from the the movie The Wolfman. And he is, he's 100% the star of this movie. Like, it really should be, all the trivia for this movie, which is so funny, It all everything I read, sites that used to be called The Wolfman Meets Frankenstein, and they switched it because Frankenstein was a more popular draw. And, like, I know it doesn't really matter, but that is the right way to look at this. This is a Wolfman movie where he runs into Frankenstein. Uh, speaking of watching these out of sequence, just because, you know, when you're looking for horror movies, you're not always, like, going to care about watching a series in order. Yeah. Um, I watched these Frankenstein movies for this episode before I was doing prep for our Wolfman episode on the yep. same podcast. And so I, I had seen every sequel to the Wolfman movie because they're all Frankenstein matchups. Like yep. Lon Chaney is the only actor who continuously played his famous monster and no one yep. else got to play the role. And I had already seen him do every single version of that character except the original Wolfman movie. I watched that one very last, which was a strange way to, to approach the character. And you had never seen it before? No, that was a new watch for me this season. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. And he kept trying to get out of the role. It's so funny how many of these monsters switch and change around and are in different movies, which is kind of the universal monster players. Because the studio owned them and like just told them yeah. what to do, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he kept trying to get out of playing the Wolfman, and the studio kept saying, sorry, bud, you're still playing the Wolfman. So he'd be like, I'll be in this movie, but can I be someone else? But he essentially becomes the anchor for these last three movies, which are kind of all about the same thing. They're all about Larry Talbot or the Wolfman who wants to die. Right. And they keep, you know, House of Frankenstein brings back Dracula. It has Boris Karloff come back as like a 
uh, the evil scientist who's trying to do all the, you know, the dark science experiments. And he's like, oh, great, Frankenstein's bot. House of Frankenstein really is the right name for that movie because the house is such a bigger prominent character than Frankenstein, who shows up in the last five minutes as the way to, like, figure this stuff out. I feel by the time we get this deep into the franchise, like you're saying, the Wolfman takes over as the main character. He is the sympathetic monster, so he's more talkative yeah. and, you know has more brain activity. So he's a more yeah. compelling character. I feel like in most of these later ones, the Frankenstein monster is literally just strapped to a table in a lab waiting for the final moments of chaos for most of the movies. Yeah. Sidelined. I, well, that's true. And like, again, his whole goal in, in house of Frankenstein and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is like, kill me, please figure out a way <laughs> to kill me. And what's so funny. So Dracula is in house of Frankenstein. What's so funny about it is that then you get to House of Dracula, which, again, is a Wolfman and Frankenstein movie first. The whole thing of that movie is that uh, there's a there's a castle of a guy named Franz Eldeman, and both Count Dracula and Larry Talbot are like, hey, I would like to stop being a Wolfman or kill me. I would like to stop being Dracula or kill me. It's like they just... They keep adding on these monsters who are like, ah, please stop making me a monster. And then they keep bringing Frankenstein's monsters back as like the key to the science that will potentially but never does cure or kill them. I think that one is the breakthrough where they actually do something interesting with the monster rally mashups. Yeah. House of Frankenstein is kind of a bore. Like, you could see that they thought there was a lot of potential in that movie and they gave it a more robust budget. Yeah, because they got they got Karloff, Karloff back. They kind of make him the main evil scientist. Like, and he's evil from the start, basically. And as a result, they really need it to work. So they kind of make it more respectable and very methodical. And uh, it gets to the point where, like, you're introduced to the characters one at a time and they never really meet. It's kind of this like pro wrestling kind of thing where they promise a really good fight and then they don't have to deliver because your butts are in the seat. But like, yeah, the production values are nicer. It's just like it doesn't give you the monster mashup you're looking for. And then House of Dracula. This is where everything has gotten so convoluted. We followed all these monsters through all these like misadventures and they're just so tired. <laughs> and they're like, I need to not be like this anymore. And it's yeah. almost like a body horror movie instead of a creature feature where, like, this scientist who um, goes in with the best intentions uh, is going to explain the physiology of why they are monsters and undo it yeah. through lab work. Yeah. He eventually goes insane, uh, like all the mad scientists do in this movie, yeah. in these movies. But originally, like, in the first, like, two or three acts, it is, like reducing these otherworldly unexplainable creatures to these like physiological ailments. And they're all just kind of waiting around in this like medical ward for the scientists to fix them. And I found that just like a really fascinating. I did too. I I love these last three movies. I agree that like house of Dracula is a little more interesting than the, than the other two. But like when you see like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, like, you know, as a kid, when I saw that and like, they're strangling each other on the poster, I'm expecting like fucking Godzilla versus King Kong. Like they're going to have a few fights. They're going to duke it out. One of them, what it's going to win. Instead, it's like Larry Talbot, like, Hey, Mr. Frankenstein, can you kill me? <laughs> like it is, it is 
the the focus on like how none of these people want to be monsters then they're all begging for the sweet release of death for the last three movies and they're not really fighting each other and if anything like they're trying to get these humans to help them that sometimes either just fuck up or don't have the best in, intentions or anything it is such a bizarre way for the back half of this series to go in an absolutely fascinating unexpected way and that's why like one of the reasons I suggested this is like these are interesting all the way through. There's eight movies, and again, I'm con- contrasting this to The Mummy, which is like there's five, where there's like the first Mummy movie is kind of not a Mummy movie, like in the, you know, wrapped up in, but still a really good movie. Uh, Boris Karloff is, is the mum, uh, not the Mummy, he's uh, the person who's bringing the Mummy to life. And then the second Mummy movie is like, hey, that's a Mummy movie in what I would have expected from the first Mummy movie. Not as good as the original, but it's some fun. But then it's just like, here's some mummies, here's some mummy ghosts and stuff like that. And the fact, and everyone's the same. You meet the mummy, even like the creature movies or the Invisible Man movies. Like, it's just like, here's the Invisible Man. We stop them. It's the same. These just stop being about monsters terrorizing people or like, or rampaging villages or like, uh, I think the last one with like any sort of like, the town is is furious is like ghost of frankenstein where you know uh frankenstein goes and like kills that one guy off the roof and then like is like just friends with the girl and they bring him to trial and like it's it's it just stops being everything except like please let us die which is probably a little bit of like a metatextual thing about all the performers that they kept bringing back and put on this heavy <laughs> probably toxic makeup to be in these movies over and over because it's like please just let us stop being monsters we hate them. we literally hate this i will say frankenstein meets the wolfman does deliver on the violence a little bit like the monsters eventually the monsters do clash at the ends of these movies but it's always a last minute reason to blow up the castle they're all hanging out yeah. in yeah yeah <laughs> every single time it's like it holds it back into the last couple minutes and then they all fight and everything collapses around them and they all usually get preserved in like sulfur or in a cave or some bullshit until they get resurrected in the next movie. Yeah. And the next movie begins with like someone like, you know, Frankenstein's frozen and someone's like, here's a pickaxe. Yeah. It's like uh, Han Solo and the kryptonite or whatever. Uh, I, I just said the wrong nerd words in the wrong order, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. It's, it's great though. It's, it's such a surprising theme and it's, it's even for the forties, like, you know, I guess I just kept expecting fun monster movies, and I didn't get fun monster movies. I got something much more interesting each time. And I, I think I might like House of Frankenstein a little bit more than you, but it's just, they're just sad. They're just yeah. sad about these people not wanting to exist anymore. And, like, what a weird, at a, at a at a time when, like, suicide is a violation of the Hays Code, right? The idea that functionally all three of these last movies are about how can Larry Talbot commit suicide is such a such a the way they get around that by by making it a monster who wants death, but it's still just fucking Lon Chaney Jr. with his uh you know outsized sports coat being like, please kill me, someone. <laughs> it's it's just like there's not another movie in this era that did anything like that, at least an American movie. My favorite theory on how to kill the Frankenstein monster is in Ghost of Frankenstein, where the scientist's idea is, I'm going to unmake him backwards. 
I'm just going to remove yeah. each body part one at a time until he's not a monster anymore. I mean, honestly, that's a great idea. They constantly have this guy strapped to gurneys and lab tables. Yeah. And they're just like, I, I don't even know where to begin. The, pr- the problem is by the time they get around to actually undoing the work, the scientist is already too far gone. He's like, actually, I could fix this. I'm going to put Igor's brain in there. Um, yeah. And that final image in Ghost of Frankenstein of Bella Lugosi talking through Glenn Strange as the monster, really fun payoff. Great payoff. And I think what I enjoy about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman a lot, um, not only, I, I do think the fight at the end is more physical between yeah. Lon Chaney and Bella Lugosi. Like, it actually feels like a, like a pub brawl for a couple minutes. They're actually like punching each other. But Lugosi himself... Those are the two movies where he hams it up so hard. In Ghost of Frankenstein, he's playing his like magical horn that controls the monster. Yeah. And then in uh in the Wolfman crossover, him in the makeup is such a spectacularly bad idea. Oh, it, it looks terrible. It's adorable though. He looks so yeah. cute. It's so it's actually maddening to me that there was quality control on this, that there was like a producer who put a stop to his voice coming out of that makeup. Cause that would be one of the great quote unquote bad movies of all time. Like it would have been like just an uncanny, unreal decision that would have solidified this as like a classic midnight movie experience where I feel like the sequels might've gotten more rotation among like genre enthusiasts. If we had one where, <laughs> it would have been funny if the last the three movies like yeah well it's just e- Igor like Frankenstein Monsters is functionally dead Igor is now a Frankenstein <laughs> and, and he's running around talking to everyone and you're right I think the decision to like scrap that also kind of changes his character because they're like well we don't he doesn't talk anymore I guess and so they keep just strapping him to gurneys until some scientist is like he's the key to it all <laughs> So, and when you were describing like this as an MCU style franchise in that way, like they do pull back and write course with House of Frankenstein after that, I think a little too much. Like they make it less ridiculous, which yeah. is not necessarily what I'm looking for because I always want something to be over the top a little bit. And yeah, I think House of Dracula gets there with the pseudoscience of like how pressure on the brain or this like parasite in the blood is what's making someone a Dracula or a Frankenstein. It's it's so specific, you know, I love all of the pseudoscience where they explain that it's, it feels like something that like I, if I would have just gone by like reputation, this, this era wouldn't have cared about as much, but there's, there's movies like son of Frankenstein spends like 40 minutes on them trying experiments, talking about how this works and so many of these movies are about like, it's, yeah, pseudoscience is right. And they're not trying to do real science, but they're trying to be like, take the science of these monster characters seriously, as opposed to like, someone put a curse on you or something like that. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they're, you know, the, the original Frankenstein novel is about science trying to control things that it hasn't always been able to control. And one of those things I like about these is like, if you're putting like the capital F Frankenstein series is that they're all kind of about that. You're, you're right to call out that each movie, there's a scientist who's learned a little more about how this actually functions or how it could work or how we could do something. And each time they are, um, they, they don't realize how little they know 
in their like arrogance to say now we understand this enough that's almost the thematic through line of all these movies it's about the arrogance of science trying to to control nature which is you know the the capital theme of the original movie and the original novel as well i was trying to think of like the tropes that are consistent across these and like a scientist being corrupted by power is definitely yeah. very clear uh, there's always an innocent child that's like fascinated with the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. Uh, there's always an angry mob. <laughs> yeah. Like pretty consistent. There's always those those styrofoam rocks that fall. Are oh in. yeah, Lugosi like, on top of the Frankenstein house throwing uh, <laughs> bricks at the mob below is one of the funniest comedy sequences so in these movies. Literally, like <laughs> 150 people with torch. He throws one brick, and they're like, "Fuck this! I guess we will not burn this castle to the ground." I feel so dumb in retrospect, like being like, "Oh man, they gave him like a shitty role in Son of Frankenstein because he makes Igor into like a whole meal." He really yeah, owns he, that character. He really does. It is it is him. And also just I like the the probably reality concept of him like, fuck it, I got to get into these movies and I really got to make my name for it. Because <laughs> he, he is hamming it up and he is having a good time. And the weirdo assistant is a consistent trope as well. Like, weirdo assistant. Even when Karloff is in jail as this mad scientist. I can't even remember what movie that's in. Uh, but he has an assistant house, called... house of Frankenstein. Okay. Yeah. So he has an assistant called Daniel in the next cell just cause he has to have one around, you know? Yeah. And they yeah. team up. They just have a guy. Uh, castles are castles. Ca- all the Franken. They may be scientists, but they like a good castle to live in. And it's great for like miniature effect shots to watch those castles crumble yeah. pretty consistently in the final shot of the, of the movie. Oh yeah, those those castles will crumble, baby. And the "it's alive" line, I feel like, gets repeated in almost every one as well. Where it, they keep calling back to that original iconic moment, um, mm-hmm. which you know, in an era where you don't have VHS, and there might be like some of these movies that stay in like repertory reruns, but like you're not going to be watching the Frankenstein movie every Halloween season. It's unlikely. No. Anyway. Well, what one thing I find interesting, you know, at a time when sequels, I guess, is for horror movies were common, but not so much uh, for else. Like, Bride of Frankenstein has a recap of the first movie, which makes a ton of sense to me. It came out four years after the first one. Like, if you if you missed Frankenstein in theaters in 1931, I mean, I'm sure they did do re-releases of popular movies, but, like, maybe, maybe you do need a recap to understand at least, like, the high-level bullet points. Um... You can't, what, are you going to look it up online? You're going to go to the one library and hope someone wrote a book about it? Like, you're fucked. You don't, you don't know what happened in that movie. Even uh, TV now has, like, previously on recaps, you know, and that stuff's yeah, readily yeah. available. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the time they get to Son of Frankenstein, they're just like, fuck it. I hope you watched all of that stuff <laughs> because it's not going to matter so much, but we are going to very closely follow the end of the last movie. Well, I also think that late in the series, like these movies are almost explicitly for children and it's like kids who go yeah. to the theater as their pastime on like a weekly basis. And it, it's kind of treated like a serial, like the, with the yeah. old Batman movies were. Yeah. But that's so insane that these, I mean, I, you're right. They are for children, but like, Hey mom, I want to see the movie about the guy who needs to die <laughs> trying to kill himself because life is eternal. Life is torture. <laughs> Maybe that's like, me retconning a, it though, because like kids. we grew up listening to Joe Dante and Steven Spielberg and yeah, 
John Landis and everyone else saying like, oh, I grew up watching these movies in the theater as a kid. Like, I don't know who else was in the audience, but yeah, I it's it's hard to gauge, you know, going back to what I said about Invaders from Mars. It is such a kid movie today. And all the reviews of the time is like, this is terrifying for children. Do not, you know, it's it's contrast. What else, you know, what else did they have that was scary? Was this movie for actually for adults? That's also good advertising, too, because the kids feel like they're getting away with something by going to see a movie that's too scary for them. I will say in that context, and in the context of watching all these Monster Rally movies, I've always found Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as kind of like an okay movie. It felt like Monster Squad was like my generation's version of that, and like this was kind of like a kitschier, sort of like downplayed version of something I already saw more over the top repetition of. And then rewatching it after seeing all these like monster rally movies in a row, it plays so much better. And it's like the monsters are immediately introduced. You instantly know who they are. They all interact immediately. And then these two comedians just do bits running around them. And it's like so much more chaotic and alive than I ever thought it was. I agree. I'm glad we're transitioning to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because I watched Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein when I was in college, when I was going through the AFI's top 100 funniest movies of all time. I had probably seen Bride and the other one, and it was like, yeah, this is like, this is fun. This is something I appreciate. It wasn't boring. But I agree this watching it after all these other movies, it's a it's a very fun experience. It's also just like the, the time between House of Dracula and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is three years, right? So it's not like that far off from like how often they were making sequels. And I love this as a concept that they don't really do. Like, okay, you know what? We've kind of run out of gas on this. Let's take two of the most well-known comedians at the time and try and make a movie out of it. It's, it kind of reminds me of, like, I can't think of a modern version of this. I can think of, like almost versions of this like the one that hits in my mind the most is is the jaws 3 people zero where the original jaws 3 was supposed to be a national lampoon parody of jaws <laughs> movie but still an official entry in the in the canon and then universal scrapped it because they're like well no people are going to gang and they did jaws 3d which is like you know a movie no one likes and considers terrible and i, I forget if spielberg was going to come back to do jaws three people zero or or it was landis or um or uh dante but like there there was there was this idea of yeah let's take our serious franchise and we're out of, we're out of gas and let's go do let's go have a fucking fun with it with this you know national lampoon which in 1979 is like you know extremely popular this is like national lampoon at the top of their box office game and giving them this other franchise i think the only like this isn't quite the same thing but even that didn't work out is like giving like lord and miller the chance to do a star wars movie and then they took that away with it and like give it to howard buds and that's a good example of the studio just not being willing to take a chance you know yeah like disney has every dollar in the market in their pocket already and yet they're still afraid to like Give someone wiggle room to play around with the material. I mean, part of that, I think, is just the reason why this happened is that the gas was out of the Universal Monster movies and the the gas was high on Abbott and Costello. So they they felt like one actually could help the other one. And then obviously Abbott and Costello kind of do meets the Invisible Man and uh, they meet Boris Karloff. And, and there's just there's one that like is just called like meets Boris Karloff or something like that, <laughs> where. Uh, and there's uh, there's another one of those, too. So it's like 
they almost like let this, but you almost wouldn't do that today either. Like if you, like, what's a good example of like, like when, uh, when, you know, Tina Fey or like someone was really popular after they did Mean Girls or, you know, you're not like, hey, why don't you guys make a Critters movie? <laughs> like, or whatever is out of gas. Like, you just, like, you wouldn't necessarily get your hot new comedians or your hot, you know, comedians that are still box office draws and give them this franchise that has kind of run out of gas. Uh, the other comedy we watch for this is probably the more famous one, which is Young Frankenstein, directed by Mel Brooks. I This was one of the first movies I owned on VHS. I got it for a Christmas present, and I had already seen it, but I loved it um, because... Probably like in seventh grade, my first exposure to Mel Brooks was Spaceballs because I had just got into Star Wars and someone said, hey, you know, they made a whole Star Wars parody. And I'm like, how did that happen? Like, you just have no concept of all time. Like, at that age, like, truly, like, what? They did Star Wars, which I've just seen and feels cool and new. And then 10 years after that, they made a whole Star Wars parody that I've also never heard of because I never paid attention to Star Wars. Like... Um, so I had, when I watched Young Frankenstein over and over and over, and I did, cause it was one of like three, the first th- three VHSs I owned, one was a present and two I purchased were, uh, were Young Frankenstein, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. So I think you can probably get who I was as a seventh <laughs> grader pretty well. Uh, but yeah, so I watched this a ton. What's interesting about Mel Brooks parody is. I love parodies because I'd, I'd seen Naked Gun at a young age. I'd seen Airplane. I'd love Spaceballs. That idea of like, if I had seen fucking superhero movie or what are all those terrible like, who are, who are those two bozos who made all those like Meet the Spartans and I know who you're referring movie. to. I watched a I watched one they made of Fast and Furious making fun of yeah. Paul Walker after he died. Uh, <laughs> it was like really just bottom of the barrel <laughs> stuff. Brutal, but like I probably would have liked those movies if they came out when I was in fourth grade because it's like, what a funny joke about this. Now, I was actually getting exposed to classics, and later on when I saw stuff like Dracula Dead and Loving, and I'm like, oh, that movie sucks. <laughs> um, but the the interesting thing about Mel Brooks parodies is they were like Spaceballs becomes more outright parody while still being like fun and weird. But like if you watch like High Anxiety or Silent Movie or History of the World Part One or or Young Frankenstein. It's just it's not the gag a minute parodies that we're trained to think about in the same way like Airplane or Naked Gun is where fundamentally the characters don't really matter. Like Frank Drebin is a joke machine. He's not a funny character set in a serious situation based on these other movies. And that's what's interesting. I imagine, like, you know, I I dropped the young Frankensteins of the world pretty quickly to do more Monty Python. Like, as a kid, it was like, oh, this is funnier. I like this, but this is funnier. And I really appreciated going back to young Frankenstein for the first time in a long time because it is just, it is, like, Frankenstein is played by Gene Wilder is a real character in this movie who is, like, it's almost doing, in a way, what Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. I'm, I'm sorry, it's it pronounced is... Frankenstein. I don't mean to stop. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Brandone. <laughs> um, but, like, I like that they are essentially doing Son of Frankenstein if everyone involved was a little goofier. Like, that's basically it. They are doing a Frankenstein movie where he comes and he's the grandson or whatever of Victor Frankenstein. He has a lot. But, like... 
everything silly <laughs> and like a, or a little sillier but everyone in this movie is a is a character like they're not Gene Wilder is portraying a person who you know fashions himself a serious scientist and the joke is that he not only immediately has the itch that he keeps like in, being in denial that doesn't affect him but he's a he's a goof he like the 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 scene that sticks in my mind so much is like him going let's handle this like Siri when he thinks that he didn't resurrect the monster as he wanted to like let's handle this like scientists like mature people and then he has a hissy fit like <laughs> kill me let me die for failing and it's like it's someone that you can relate to someone who wants to be a big boy serious scientist but is actually kind of this sad infant in the shadow of his much more famous um uh, grandfather with a chip on his shoulder about it. And if you need any evidence that this is more of a Son of Frankenstein movie than it is like an original Frankenstein spoof, they both feature the inspector character who has a prosthetic arm that the Frankenstein monster rips off his body and beats him with, which yeah. <laughs> is very specifically referencing Son of Frankenstein. Yeah. It has, Brian, like it has ripoffs, of, or not ripoffs, it has parodies like the very famous scene where he visits the old blind man, which is in Bride of Frankenstein. Here it's played by Gene Hackman. But the joke is that uh, Gene Hackman is actually the terrorizer of Peter Boyle's The Monster. Like, it's, you know, it, it's taking things from the other movie, but the whole spine is Son of Frankenstein. I feel like there are even references that go deeper into the lore, like beyond that, like deeper yeah. into the sequels. I'm specifically thinking of the monster responding to music. And like weird musical yeah. instruments. Oh yeah, because by the end they're at the top like playing harps and violins. Is like <laughs> here's how we get them back. It's very funny. I was thinking after watching all these other ones, like what's really missing from this is a Wolfman appearance. <laughs> yeah, there is one joke where Igor um, hears someone say werewolf, and he goes, "Their house, me Igor." You know, uh, so there's like a werewolf reference in the movie, but it's like yeah. I had gotten, you know, eight films deep into the franchise, like so yeah. used to seeing Larry Talbot yeah. show up over and over again. I kind of missed his presence in the spoof. It just comes and asks to be killed. Right. <laughs> Frankenstein shoots him or something yeah. and, it's, and it's over. Yeah. And this is also just filled with comedy ringers, too, like Madeline Kahn, Terry Garr, Peter Boyle, all amazing. The putting on the writ scene that is like the scene that everyone talks about still to this movie is still like amazing and feels kind of like a King Kong reference, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course I have the guy and he does the thing and it's, it's, it's also just great because like, it's fun to see Gene Wilder in movies, right? Like he, you know, he helped write the, he was, he was um, the star of most of Mel Brooks earlier movies and helped write the movies. You know, he's a co-writer on this. And then eventually, you know, Mel Brooks has a joke that eventually Gene Wilder left his like, little troop to go do other things and kind of forced himself to start being the star of the movies to replace Gene Wilder. But like this blazing saddles and producers, he's just so good in. And the thing about Gene Wilder, that's like sad in my opinion is that he it was just an amazing actor and a comedian. And he's in so many terrible, terrible movies like the Peter Sellers problem. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like, like you basically have the three Mel Brooks movies and Willy Wonka, and I still really like Willy Wonka, although he's just he's not playing a relatable character by by the nature of that movie. So you don't have the same like 
you know, him and the producers just being like, you know, scared of Zero Mostel and just, you know, screaming on the floor and everything else is like, it's so great. You don't get, you don't get that in a Willy Wonka, but like, have you ever, I don't know if you've seen any of those Richard Pryor movies. They are dire. They are dire. They are not, I've seen all three of them. I've seen Silver Bullet, um, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and uh, Stir Crazy. And like, they are, they are what I call the problem of like, why it was my expectations of comedy before I found stuff like Mel Brooks or Monty Python or Mystery Science Theater 3000 or Airplane was like a comedy movie was like a movie where you laugh once one to two times right because those movies are not trying they are they are comedy movies with theoretically two of the funniest people in the world at the time that they're made and like they write a joke in the middle of the movie that's like oh I could see why that would be amusing it's it's bizarre the way that they just they're you, you can see why though national national Lampoon and stuff took over the world because it's like what if we just keep writing jokes <laughs> like constantly and even that was calling back to that frank tashlin or even the Abbott and costello meet frank Abbott and costello yeah. stuff yeah yeah so there there is such a weird uh studio comedy thing in the in the 70s and 80s especially that's like yeah, just two funny people existing should be fine for a comedy. I, I don't remember if he's the one that came up with it or if he just cited it a lot, but Gene Siskel had that test where it's like, is this as enjoyable as it would be as having a dinner with these actors? Yeah. And those movies yeah. fail that test miserably. Miserably. <laughs> yeah, they, they they are the they are the movies that like your dad remembers laughing when he had never seen another comedy and is like, you have to see Stir Crazy, and then you're like do Does I? <laughs> something funny happen in this movie? Yeah, at some point, but yeah, that's that is the Gene Wilder problem. And then you know he just he just didn't get that many movies. So seeing him in Young Frankenstein at like kind of the height of his powers, really just kind of playing this really pathetic character who is still like inspired this group of weirdos around him to rally. It's it's a great character, and it's something that like it's what separates it from those other movies. Like I love naked gun. I love airplane. Uh, you know, I, you know, Frank Drebin is a, a guy. <laughs> he, he has no sense of like who he, though. The funny thing is, is that he's nonplussed by everything and doesn't understand everything, but that's, you don't, no one's rooting for Priscilla Presley and Frank Drebin because you think there's a love story. You want them to make more jokes about the stuffed beaver and stuff like that, where, where this one, the idea of like, you know, him just kind of being forced to marry Madeline Kahn in a reference to that and then finding Terry Gar and then Madeline Kahn ending up OK by falling. Like it, it has some actual character dynamics that you care about. And a lot of care obviously goes into the visual recreations of the original works. Yeah. A lot of miniature backgrounds of the castle and well, and they used a lot of the real props. He went to oh, Universal okay. and like ra- he raided as many of the props and other things that they had that you could get. It shows, and I, I don't know how much yeah. added film grain they put on that, because that's such a, such a modern thing yeah. to do, but watching all of these in a row, and then I watched a pretty high-definition version of Young Frankenstein on Me HBO too, yeah. Max, a movie I'm most used to seeing on VHS with that yeah. tape warp filter on it, yeah. but like seeing it restored in that digital way where you see like the film grain on top of it, it felt like they aged it on purpose to look like a an older film print of what the Frankenstein movies would have looked like in the seventies on the sort of like battered 35 millimeter prints that like toured the country one too many times. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like it, 
it, there was almost no difference even from the way the credits are presented and going from like a son of Frankenstein to young Frankenstein. And that's why like I love the idea that it really does kind of fit in the rest of the story just with a little more incompetence and a little more silliness that occurs. And obviously that's the benefit of watching all these movies in a row is like individually like uh my sort of poor way of approaching son of Frankenstein in the first place out of order. I didn't really think much of it, but after watching so many of them, it's like, I start appreciating the small differences and like how the set design was still really beautiful. And like they still had uh, Vera West doing the gowns for the women, um, which she got a lot of the early credits for that because she worked for universal and like the costumes in that movie are like really thoughtful and inventive in a way that later on, once you get to, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein. They they're like kids don't fucking care about that. I'm just trying to crank on a movie, you know. Well, I not to not to get to wrap up, but like that's also one of the reasons why I was like, why should we do this? Like when I gave some suggestions of what to do for your podcast, I thought this made perfect sense because I know it feels like ten movies. Technically, that's true, <laughs> but. I'm never going to do an episode on House of Dracula. I'd have ten, I'd five minutes to say about it. Like, I like it. The thing where these work is like, do you have a day to spend 10 hours watching, you know, a lot of movies or like a week to do? There's there's something that's additive about how fun all these are together and to spot the differences and the changes in the monsters and where they keep coming back to the same things or the same themes or everything else. Like, sure, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are worth their own hour and a half long podcast but to your point like i can't think of two pieces of horror media that have had more coverage like if you want to you know go do invisible man or creature of the black lagoon those are still have you know they're still worth talking about they have less they have left less to say about it whereas like you know this is just very well-worn territory except once you get past bride of frankenstein and then everything becomes very worthwhile to watch and a ton of fun as a series and something that I think is extremely unique in the annals of like pre, you know, 1960s, 1970s American cinema just as a, as a series. But is there an, you know, they're, they're 70 minute movies that are kind of hit a lot of the same points, but are at least different enough to not make it feel like I'm watching the same movie eight or nine times. I might have bounced off Son of Frankenstein a little bit too, because it's a hundred it's a hundred minutes instead of seventy minutes. It's the, it's the longest one. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little, yeah, yeah. little long in the tooth. It's a long well forty minutes of that is them figuring out how Frankenstein came to be and then going <laughs> like I'm gonna they really delay his like I'm gonna go do monster shit. Which I which I like. I do have a question, I guess. I mean, we are kind of recommending that people run through these. And it is great Halloween season viewing for that reason, because it is like the source text for so much spooky season iconography. And then, you know, the later you get into the franchise, like there might just be movies no one has talked about in like 50 years. Cause like, why would yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. I bet if I, I bet if I look house of Frankenstein into like Apple podcast, I'm going to get a lot of things. That's not quite a match where they talk about. This right. Movie. You know how like fashion houses and like drag houses have like house of Gucci house of. Yeah. Why is there not like a drag like House of Frankenstein? I'm, maybe in New York City there is. I just missed it. But yeah, I mean, or you know, I think it's a good business to start. You're in a good area to get that going. I think, I think you could have the, the Swamp Flicks drag show. I could pivot into a um a drag mother at this point in my life. I think I can handle yeah. that. And then just record the live the podcast live while drag is happening. <laughs> I guess 
even though we are saying that these work better as a group, I do want to ask, um, because I have a ranking mind, like, do you have favorites and least favorites in the group? Yeah, I almost, you know, this is like, I almost go in reverse order. Like, I, I you know, I, my favorite is Frankenstein, then it's Bride, then it's Sun, then I think it's Ghost. Okay. And then I might go like, I don't know, I might go House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. But those are those last three are very close to each other. And I don't think it makes sense to rank Abbott and Costello in that group or Young. I mean, Young Young Frankenstein would probably be number two, three, maybe after the first two, if like I was adding that to the list. And 1994's Frankenstein is if you want to see a bad movie. <laughs> I know you're going to be talking about it. I don't I'm I'm very excited to hear that show. But I watched it because I was like, oh, what does a remake of this movie looks like? And then I saw just an insane movie that made no sense. And then I was like, oh, that's the adaptation of the book? Like, okay, <laughs> you um, – it's it's funny. Uh, I know – I think you're talking about Wolf as well. I like Wolf quite a lot. And I like – I really like Bram Stoker's – or Stoker's uh, Dracula – it's amazing how off the mark that Frankenstein movie is. Like, it's not without its. You, I don't know if you watched it yet. It has moments of camp. It has moments of like this is. I told Peter when I watched it because I watched it just to get a sense of it for this podcast. I'm like, I think you should watch it because it's bizarre and there's a lot to talk about. And like, I'm I'm excited for your episode on that just because it is worth a two hour or an hour dissection of what the fuck was this and like. How did so many interesting ideas and a good director like feel so disjointed and why didn't they figure out what to take out or add? But I don't know. Maybe you love that movie. I can see you loving that movie. You know, the only Branagh film I can really like stand up for is Dead Again, which is a very stupid movie and pulls a lot of gothic horror influence. I feel like from this area. Yeah. You know what I really like, I think, is Gods and Monsters. I definitely saw that well before I saw Frankenstein. Gods and Monsters is so good and one of those, like, big-time award contenders for 1998, I think, that no one talks about anymore. Uh, But it won Ian McKellen, I think, the Academy Award, and it's a... It's a great movie. I should have rewatched it for this. A much better love letter to this era than uh, Branagh could ever pull off. A hundred percent. But watching these extra features on these classic Universal box set discs, like... There is a feature that's just Kenneth Branagh lovingly narrating this like fluff documentary piece about the history of horror within that studio, um, probably made around the time that he made his Frankenstein movie to promote the history of the studio. And I like felt affection for him in a way that I haven't in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't have anything against him. It's just a very misguided. Yeah. Movie. Legit. I don't like it's. It's I I get the concept of like it's interesting that Universal was like let's remake after Dracula was successful let's remake the other two as well uh, from a modern parlance but uh, yeah it's 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 I I think the thing that he just didn't get is like trying to do a literal adaptation of that book is bizarre and weird and he he should have he should have got a little more cutty and. The positive reviews I found on Letterboxd are the people that are like, I loved the book and it was pretty cool to see the book come to life. And then everyone else is like, yeah, the book doesn't work as well as a movie in 1994. That's why short stories make for better source material than novels when you're adapting something into a movie. Or just like take the right ideas. This kind of like, let's do a literal adaptation of a book is stupid. 
That's why I kind of want to say there's no point in ranking the uh, James Whale ones with the rest of these because it's like he found some core imagery and ideas in there and like left them enough room to breathe in this sort of like atmospheric yeah. way that like is high art in a way that I cannot yeah. argue any of these later sequels are. No. No, there, I mean, there is something, there's probably someone who, like, named, like, Transformers last night the best movie of the year, who's like, Ghost of Frankenstein is the best <laughs> one, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, the first two are untouchable. I mean, they're, they're, they're the best of all the universal horror movies, I would say. If I'm going to recommend any out of sequence for someone who's not fully committed to watch eight <laughs> Frankenstein yeah. movies in a row, besides the two James Whale ones... I think Bella Lugosi in the monster makeup in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is very funny and very adorable. Yeah. If you have any affection for him, it is so ill-conceived and such a bad <laughs> idea that the fact that they actually went from like test footage to producing an entire movie where he plays the monster is just yeah. endlessly funny to me. Yeah. And I don't care how bad the movie is. Like every time I look at him in the makeup, I smile which is plenty yeah. fine. And the other movie that like really stands out to me is House of Dracula, which is kind of the end of the actual Monster Rally movies because yeah. just the body horror, atomic age sci-fi of it feels like a new, interesting angle on the material you won't find elsewhere. Yeah, and Dracula just being like, can you cure me too? I suck right, as well. Right. Like, it's, it's so funny. Yeah, everyone's suicidal and sad to be alive. Yeah. So yeah, I, I greatly enjoyed this as a group. Those were the two that really stood out to me as far as like the later forgotten ones go. Yeah, but um, they all work better in a continuum. And this is the month or even the day I'm posting this on Halloween day. This is the day to like knock them all out in a marathon. And they are very short. Yeah, go watch it. 10 movies. I mean, you don't have to watch <laughs> Young Frankenstein or Ab technically you can just watch eight and then like save the other two for whatever. Although Abbott and Costello and Young Frankenstein are great cappers to this for all the reasons we shared. But yeah, I mean. We got something better to do. Go watch eight movies. Brandon <laughs> did it when I asked him to. As the list kept getting longer, like, should we do Avon Costello? Yes. Should we do Young Frankenstein? Yes. Oh, I'm going to watch Frankenstein 1994. And the other recommendation I have is that people listen to the We Love to Watch podcast because I've always looking for podcasts that approach this sort of like sillier, goofier end of genre cinema with like an open mind and like a genuine appreciation and not a so bad. It's good. Let's laugh at this stuff. Yeah. Podcasting style. Um, so we love to watch. I fully recommend it for that, which the people who listen to the show, I hope get that from us as well. Uh, yeah, we, we, we've always almost called each other sister podcasts just because we, the, the, it was an immediate friendship just from listening to each other's podcasts of like, Oh, we, you know, we like sort of things. And also, I just really like it, Brandon, because one of the reasons I love your podcast, not only you have a great group of people that, that are on it, but also just because, like, I like trying to figure out what a Brandon movie ends up being. <laughs> like, when we, when I, I remember I suggested a few movies for you when I was on the, when the head was the centerpiece episode, and I'm like, this is going to be a Brandon movie. Like, I don't <laughs> know why. It's ineffable. It's hard to describe. Like, I, but I think I get his aesthetic in a way that I couldn't, like, list it but i know when i see a movie it's gonna be a brandon movie and i i like that kind of like i think you have a very unique perspective on movies and anytime you're really positive about one it usually ends up on my watch list so yeah love love your podcast as well i can't believe we only talk like once a year because it feels like we talk all the time but uh yeah by the time this comes out we'll be back in person hell yeah
And one of us will come out. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs>